welcome to the CLB Forge podcast, brought to you by CLB North American Mission. This is a show to help equip you and your church for mission, ministry, and multiplying disciples. Welcome to episode 68. I am Mike Natal. And I'm Ryan Nilsson. We're your hosts, and today we're talking with CLB President Paul Larson. President Larson grew up and attended Elam Lutheran Brethren Church in Clearbrook, Minnesota. Shout out Adam Krogh. He's married to B, and they have five children, three daughter-in-laws, and I understand that this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, but they have a grandbaby on the way too, so that's really exciting news. Congratulations. He served as youth minister in Billings, Montana. He planted a church in Fort Collins, pastored churches in Fullerton, California, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and currently serves as the president of our denomination, the Church of the Lutheran Brethren. He loves seeing individuals get the gospel and then take hold of it, become disciples, and then begin making other disciples themselves, which is rooted in our podcast. So we welcome you in, President Paul Larson. It's great to have you. Thanks for taking time to be with us. Thank you for having me. We want to start off with a really heavy question. What was your favorite childhood cartoon growing up? You mean like cartoon TV, cartoon magazine, both? Take my pick. Hey, whatever you want. Yeah, we were thinking TV, but I hadn't even thought about... I mean, I take these questions seriously. TV, uh, yeah, I was born in the early 60s, probably Looney Tunes, Underdog, Pink Panther. But if we're talking actual cartoon books... I was hooked on these two cowboy cartoon books that were handed down to me by older cousins. And it was Rawhide Kid and the Two-Gun Kid all the way every day. So uh, you guys have no clue what I'm talking about. No, no, not at all. But that's totally okay. I was actually going to ask you, do you still have a copy of those? No, I think my mom garage sailed all my baseball cards, all my cartoon books, and I could be living wealthy with a vacation home in the Bahamas now if she hadn't done that. But (laughs) Yeah, I feel your pain. As a kid, too, who succumbed to the parents' garage sailing for cheaper than they should have, I feel your pain. Thanks. Absolutely. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your discipleship journey? Yeah. I don't know if I can tell you a little bit. I'm getting to be an older guy. It's getting to be a longer journey, longer story. But I, I knew this question was coming. And I would say a couple of phrases that come to mind when I think about my disciple journey kind of boiled down for me, I would say, shaped by mentors with opportunities to stretch, be stretched. Maybe not even opportunities. Maybe it's more like coercions, encouragements, but just being invited or placed into settings that I didn't feel quite prepared for, but a door was open for me. And those were both really shaping. So I'll give you a few examples of that. Early on in childhood, I was a product of our Lutheran Brethren Church in northern Minnesota, grew up a farm boy. I've always said that my mother, Ruth, was my first seminary professor, would have long theological conversations with her. I actually have the distinction of a couple of my earliest mentors. My dad was a real quiet man, talked a lot of spirituality, theology with my mom. But I actually have two elder mentors in my life named Helmer. Are you ready for this? And Helmer. So <laughs> two of the wow. elders, Helmer Johnson and Helmer Hansen. And they're both these great and godly men. And I just shaped early on by listening to their testimony, their confession of faith at communion meetings, especially, or Wednesday night meetings. And it was the same story every time, but it was this beautiful mixture of a grace steep theology of resting in the finished work of Christ with a very kind of missional, they wouldn't have used that word, but this missionary heart to share that, that other people needed to know it. 
And I waited for those testimonies, like the best reruns of The Lone Ranger. I was deeply influenced by that. And they was a small enough church and knew them very well. I had a favorite uncle, Reuben, as well. I had a very serious, tragic accident when I was 11 years old. It took three years to heal. I was out of school for a semester, had to be tutored, three-year healing process, out of sports, just really a lot of stretching time. I remember the sense of maybe destiny sounds too big, but the sense of my life being preserved for a purpose and my discipleship journey, though I wouldn't have used that phrase, being really pressed upon my mind, my identity at a New Year's Eve service. I don't know what year this was. I was 11 years old, where in a time of prayer, praying in the new year, this little church surrounded me and gave thanks for my life being preserved. Because it was kind of one of those 50-50, could have lived, could have died kind of thing. It was a serious head injury, fractured skull. I remember just growing up with this sense of, God, you have me in a spiritual family, and you've preserved my life for a reason. And that was impacted on me early on in a, a local, small, little rural church that just loved me and let me know that I was set apart, not just because I'd had a serious injury, but I was cared for in that. And that led to things, you know, youth group and beyond. And we used to have youth services once a month on Sunday evening, and they put me up front, this undersized, you know, runt of a kid leading the service and songs in the ninth grade, 10th grade, dealing with acne, playing my trumpet poorly, I might add. But I was stretched to lead and to verbalize and to be drawn into situations where I wanted to serve, I wanted to please, but I was also really stretched to have a voice and to leave my stamp. And that led to, you know, similar experiences at Inspiration Point of being counseling there as a sophomore in high school, going off to the Bible college we had at the time being mentored by people like Don Brew, John Kildee, Harold Hosh, Omar Jernis, you know, Levang. At the same time, I enrolled at our community college in Fergus. Uh, concurrently. And so I had instructors like Warren Olson and Ken Peters in literature, readings in C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, and guys at age 17, and I really don't mean to brag as much as to admit foolhardishness here, I enrolled for 27 credits in two schools at the same time as a 17-year-old, and I hadn't learned that you couldn't do that. And so I did that. And, you know, by second semester, I scaled down to a modest <laughs> 22 credits and took on a part-time job. But I think it was an example of being shaped by mentors and having opportunities to expend my youthful energy in a way that I was just summoned to do some things. That happened again in a different way when I became a youth director after two years of Bible college at our church in Billings, Montana. Going to be heading out there next month to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Yellowstone LBC. And I was mentored there by the likes of O.D. Thompson, Ed Munson as well. And I did three years of university there, preached my first sermon at 19. It was on the radio, had to be 25 minutes. I prepared, I remember, for 25 hours. I read every stinking word off of note cards, and I was awful. I was pathetic. But that church saw something, encouraged and nurtured, and said, do it again, do it again. I probably preached a half a dozen times there from 19 to 22 when I was there. But here's the other example of that. I was a full-time student working, I don't know, they hired me for 15 or 20 hours a week. And again, I don't want this to sound like braggadocia. It's more the youthful zeal of haven't figured out what no is yet and what you can or can't do. And so here was my schedule when I started off with youth ministry, and I sustained this for three years. I taught high school Sunday school on Sunday morning, junior high youth group on Sunday nights, high school youth group on Tuesday nights, 
had a prayer meeting on Wednesday night, which was really a leadership discipling time of leading college age high school students. Thursday night at a college crew group and Friday night opened up the parsonage and game night. So I had six meetings a week. And I loved it. And nobody told me I couldn't do that. And it thrived. And I think my life was built around an example of older mentors who didn't take advantage of me. They said, you can do it. You can do it. Go ahead. And I was kind of summoned into stretching experiences. I was summoned to the table of leadership early and I made a lot of mistakes and got pushed to the edge of health more than a few times. But I really grew. That was part of my discipleship journey was having encouraging voices in my life and opportunities to serve and lead well before I was really qualified to do so. I think the word that comes to mind as I'm hearing you explain that is steeped. You were steeped in a lot of individuals who spoke into your life. A lot of mentors allowed you to grow into the person that you are today. So that's definitely the word that I would use, steeped. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a good word. Paul, along those lines, as you talk about people that have invested in you, who has shaped your leadership style? So you talk about being summoned to the leadership table at an early stage. Who are some of those people or is there an individual that comes to mind when you think about that? You know, I shared with you a spiritual journey that covered the early part of my life. And certainly that has led on to further journey in the last four decades of my life. But I think influence of early mentors, including my mom, including the two Helmers, including Bible college teachers, Odie Thompson, tremendous senior pastor. I learned a love and reverence and expectancy for God's word not just to be what we, you know, we confess that it is inspired and inerrant and authoritative. And I think sometimes in our realm, we kind of miss expressing a little bit that alongside of inspired, inerrant, and authoritative, that it is transformative, that it is alive, that it is always this top-down move through the word preached, the word of living Logos, Christ himself preached by his spirit in the sacraments, by his body, And I think I learned early on from these mentors to have a regard and an expectancy that the word will do and be what the word does and is. And still my greatest confidence, I have a little bit of trepidation coming on your podcast and I'm not twice your age, but some of it is I've got one great confidence when I speak. And that is if I speak the word of God, I have confidence. If I'm not, well, there are some question marks around the edges of, of what's going to be said there. So I think some of those early people really influenced my not only belief in, but expectancy of God's word to be God's word. I'd also say, I think my family shaped me a lot beyond mom, uncles, and aunts. The family I married into, my father-in-law, Karam Kwame, part of that. My wife and kids have had shaping influences on me. Scripturally, Jesus, I hope. I don't want to bypass that. I love the scriptural figure of Simeon in Luke chapter two. I've always been attached to to Simeon because one of the prayers of my life is I realize how much I am drawn to people who age well. Uh, These in my marriage verse was from Psalm 92. It says they will stay fresh and green. They will still bear fruit in old age. And I've always been drawn to elder saints who seem like they get wiser and sager and softer and more spiritually profound as they age. I want to be that guy. And so when I see Simeon in the temple saying, now dismiss your servant in peace, you know, my life is full. I've been influenced that way in leadership as well. I know you're asking more of contemporary shapers of my leadership style. Sanford Soma was my boyhood pastor. Odie Thompson, I mentioned. Down the hallway, Dr. Gene Bowe. I had him 
both Bible college or seminary. And, and of course, he's become just a really close colleague in past years. And if I have a nightmare, not a nightmare, if I have a dream that that perpetual revisited dream, that's the scary dream. My, my tension dream is I've signed up for a class and I'm at the end of the semester and I totally forgot that I was in that class. I haven't done a lick of work or a paper. Or, yeah. You know who the instructor is for the class every stinking time is Gene Bell. I've told him this. And I think some of it, I just, That's great. Uh, he had a great shaping influence, still does, his brother. Dave Lonauger was a pastor, a retired missionary who was driving up a few days a week from Denver to Fort Collins, Colorado, summer of 87. I went to seminary planning to be an international mission. I wanted to be a seminary instructor in Chatter, Cameroon. Had another accident, thumb surgery, second year of seminary, playing wiffle ball at a seminary fellowship. Ended up with an ulcer. I don't ask for the connecting dots, but I was going to spend the summer of 87 in Cameroon building a house for Matt and Judy. Couldn't go. I remember the day I went into Jarl Olson's office, mission director at the time, saying, I don't have doctor's clearance to go. And walking down the hallway with my head down and feeling this big arm around my shoulders belonging to Burton Bundy saying, I got a place for you this summer. And it was Fort Collins, Colorado, where Dave Lonauger had started Bible studies with a few floating atom Lutherans out there in Fort Collins. And I went out there and served for the summer filling in for Dave when he went back to teach in Japan for the summer. And that was the fork in the road for me. I fell in love with church planting and North American mission, and my life was changed that way. But watching Dave Lonauger's love for taking a grace-centered theology and in a missionary way embracing community was very impactful on me. There was an elder gentleman in the church named Ernie Woodworth. He's not a Lutheran. He was a friend of one of the early leaders of that church. And as now, I suppose, a 24-year-old preacher, guy was losing his sight, losing some of his hearing, but he would always wait to hear the proclamation of Jesus' finished work on the cross for him. And this 92, 93-year-old man sitting in the third row at the Holiday Inn where the church was meeting at that time, when I would, it moves me still, lots of years ago, when I would get to Jesus, this guy's face would go up like this and his fist would go in the air. And he didn't uh, interrupt, but I could see him mouth the words, that's my Jesus. That's my Jesus. I wanted to preach Jesus if it was just for for Woody, we called him. Um, Elder saints like that really shaped me. Morris Wordall shaped me as an evangelist and as a pastor and as a leader going through a building program out in Fullerton when I first came there in 91. Morris promised me when he courted me for the job, like, we'll build the building. And when you come out, we'll pastor together for one year. You'll be senior pastor. I'll be your associate. If anybody knows, remembers Morris Wordall, that wasn't going to happen. I knew it, but I crave working together with that evangelist, pastor, leader, former missionary for a while. But his management of people and leadership of mission was very influential on me. I have been blessed by strong elder boards in all four congregations where I've served. And I know some pastors really struggle in power, politics, control with elder boards. I've had four elder boards that really brought me in as a brother alongside of them and saw me as both a leader, even as a young punk pastor, affirming leadership gifts, and at the same time, I think, took responsibility to help shape me. And my view of a pastor in a church is, have you ever seen those photo collages where they have like, dog owners and dogs who over time start to look like each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think pastors and churches are that way. I think a pastor shapes a lot of the church, 
But the church really shapes the pastor too. It kind of summons the gifts and drive and leadership of the pastor. And man, my journey has been really blessed by strong, good, godly co-shepherds of elder boards in the churches where I've served who shape me. Also, I have been shaped though by a pretty tight, close band of brothers in several communities. I don't know what the stats are. I've heard both 30%. I've heard one in seven pastors say that they really have a close personal friend. And I ache for that. I have been blessed by having close bands of brothers that I can bear my soul to. I still do. Those people have also shaped my leadership style. The past two presidents are both mentors of mine. I'd be remiss to not say President Joel and President Bob both invested in me from a young age in leadership in the Church of Lutheran Brethren. I don't think they ever picked me to be in the role that I'm probably picked against me. I said, if I was ever to campaign for office, we don't campaign for office. But if I had a slogan for presidency, it would be Paul Larson not as smart as Bob, not as nice as Joel. I realized I couldn't say that because it made it sound like I thought I was actually smarter than Joel and nicer than Bob. And I wouldn't say that either. But these guys have, have been shapers of me too. And I have great esteem for those who have preceded me. So as you've come out of pastoral ministry and into a different way of serving our denomination, our churches, and the people who make them up now as the denominational president, can you tell us a little bit about your vision for our denomination and the direction that we're going? Well, how much time do we have? I knew this question was coming to you, and I tried to say, what are the three or four big things that I'd like to say as far as direction for the denomination, vision for a preferable future? This isn't new, but it's always before me. And that is, I think we need this constant remedial re-embrace that we, the Church of the Lutheran Brethren, are a confessing people in the fullest orb meaning of word confessing. So on the one hand, we confess the confessions. We confess Reformation-era Lutheran body that confess a theology of grace. I think we're as Lutheran as Lutheran can be in that. And so I love the expression that we are a people restful in grace. We must be that. We are that. At the same time, our confession of the confessions can never be content to be kind of this two-dimensional kind of thing, this sterile, antiseptic kind of body of truth that we sign off on and we are sheltered in that. We confess our confessions in a witnessing missional way. We have to. We're a missionary people as much as we are confessing people. Our version of confessionalism is three-dimensional. Always, it must be. We have to have what we believe eke out in mission to our neighbors, in our speech, in our friendships, in our priorities, in our sacrifice, in our theology of vocation. We have to give up our sons of our daughters. We cannot allow ourselves to become flat, to become two-dimensional in a mission that becomes devoid of this pulsing Lutheran living theology of grace, nor can we allow ourselves to become flat in our confessions and have our identity start to be formed more protectively, circle the wagons in that antiseptic, sterile precision, because in time that really grows into a muted witness of the gospel. You guys have heard me say before that given the two great motivations of all living organisms to protect a life, to survive, and to reproduce, to proliferate, I would always underscore and esteem that the highest, most noble urge of living organisms is to proliferate, is to leave more life than left behind. And I like to think whether it's an animal backed into a corner shielding a young one or a church, that given 
the options of survival or proliferation, we'll choose proliferation. We'll choose the next generation. We'll make the sacrifices and decisions to see the witness of the gospel go forward. And so it's a lot like prayer and repentance and faith itself ever being remedial. I think this tension in the Church of the Lutheran Brethren being this confessing confessional people, this Lutheran missionary people, we're always going to have to come back to that again and again. I don't think there's any escape for that. And leadership, my leadership has to model that, gets to model that. Thanks, Dr. Bo. Part of my repentance and faith is being recentered to, is this in balance that what I confess in theology, how I rest in grace, is also what propels me and invites me into a restlessness of the witness of the gospel to be a disciple-making people. I don't know how to talk about the future of the denomination apart from ever remedially embracing that tension, because that's who we are. And if we're not that, I don't think we have a reason to be. Vision for our denomination. I think we need to become more aware, sharper in revisiting what it is to be a book of Acts kind of church in this regard that we must embrace in post-Christendom. We must embrace in post-pandemic or current pandemic what it is to be an underground church and alien people who no longer have the privilege of doing ministry from the privileged center of our community, the trusted privileged center of communities. But we really need to understand that our calling, even in North America now, is from a questionable fringe. And that can be really invigorating to the mission of the church, I might add. I think that can be pruning, but that can be clarifying, that can be energizing. I think idols die, sacred cows get stripped away in a time like that. And you guys also may have heard me talk, I like these words of centripetal and centrifugal. We have both of these forces evidence in the early church in Acts where you have the church centripetally being drawn in, gathering in homes and temple courts, and they have a need to gather and other onlookers. And, you know, Pentecost, the experience of that comes out of this centripetal gathering of the church. We need to have our hour of holy service for people of the word, the, the preached word, the offer of the gift of the sacraments, the gathering of the body of Christ, all essential to us receiving and responding to that. We can't diminish that. But in post-Christendom, We need to give equal attention to that other part of the expression of the church in Acts. It was not only this centripetal force gathering, but it was this very intentional dispersing centrifugal force that just was ever-increasing circles going out through the homes into the communities, and people were being impacted, and people were being converted, and disciples were being made and invited in by this breath of the church, this inhaling and exhaling of the church. I think the time we, we live in call for us to be more and more intentional, and I think the pandemic had an invitation in it for pastors and churches to say, okay, who are we now when we can't meet in the bricks and mortar church? And who are we now when we can't have our 80% of our energies invested into what we do on Sunday mornings in the church? How are we now, this confessing confessional people, now when we're shielded from that, when that's taken away from us for a while? I think that's been a good, difficult thing. So I think we need to get sharper and more intentional being that gathering and dispersing church because I don't see it going back to Christendom. I don't see us going back where we can assume that the mission of the church can be accomplished largely by a gathering mentality only. And I also think that's got to start with the modeling, the repentance and faith and response of leadership. Third part of the vision for the church, funding our vision for church planting in North America is a huge challenge. In the next five years, we want to double what we've done in the last five years. In the five years after that, we want to triple what we've done in the last five years in church planting. 
Where are those dollars going to come? I don't know. I trust the Lord's got hills full of cattle. If he calls us to that, we're going to find it. But I really believe our greater need than funding that mission is raising up next generation of church leaders, both men and women, ordained men, non-ordained commission men and women who will be part of teams who will plant churches nationally and internationally. And at this time in post-Christendom and what I just described in the church, I think we have to be very deliberate and prayerful and encouraging. We need to find young men and women to put our arm encouraging Burton Bundy arm around the shoulder and say, I got a place for you and invite to the table young people who don't know it can't be done or shouldn't be tried, who are you know more free from their schedules and mortgages and portfolios and their vision isn't weary. And that embrace and Joel 2 and Acts 2 of that mix of the spirit poured out and evident in a way that young people see vision and old men dream dreams, that there's this mix of old and new that energizes our mission. But we need to take some risks. We need to take chances. We need to raise up our kids and our spiritual kids that we mentor. And our goal is not to protect them. It's not to preserve them. It's not to be possessive of them, but it's really to stretch and summon them into leadership. And I envision a new wave of church planning, disciple making in North America and international mission that's going to require us to creatively say, how do we build bridges of relationship with our elementary kids who become middle schoolers, become high schoolers, who become young adults and leaders in our church? In the chicken and the egg question that we talked about uh, in a few different times around our leadership here, and I know it can work both ways, and I do think we do need to work it both ways. And what I'm talking about is which comes first, disciple-making or a church plant? I am inclined to believe more often that disciple-making is the chicken and the planted church is the egg. Mike Breen liked to say that if you start a church, you might make disciples or you might just get transfer growth largely. But if you make disciples, always a church will result. And so I think we can work it both ways. We need to overtly plant churches, but alongside of that, be intentional of how we make disciples. And at the core of that is we need to raise up a new generation of leadership leading and doing that. Last thing I'll say is I dream of a day, and I don't want to just dream. I want to be part of good, healthy steps toward this. When local congregations, local pastors elder boards, consider themselves, think of themselves in terms of identity and actual ministry less and less as only isolated local embodiments, and more and more in partnership with a cohort of other pastors and congregations. I think we need to discover a greater and greater, a a symbiotic biological health of the church that says our identity and our health and our mission are accentuated by living in partnership with the gifts of different pastors and congregations working together. So I think the pandemic also opened up our eyes a little bit. We produced material. Even this podcast is part of that. There's so many specializations required of pastors now. There's very few pastors that can be the whole package. And so at the same time, as we have this specialization call for pastors, we have the pruning of the church in post-Christendom and post-pandemic. So with the diversity of gifts we have in the advance of technology and receptivity and proficiency in using that technology, I think we need to explore more and more doors for how we can have this greater gestalt of mission where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So 
how we do children's ministry, how we preach, how we provide technical proficiency, how we do church record keeping, how we govern and counsel and plan and train worship, how we send and support missionaries, how we plant daughter churches and multi-campus churches. I envision a time where we will see ways that we can do that better in closer partnership between pastors and congregations than we have had a tendency to in the past. Some guys can operate right in their wheelhouse in a way that can be shared expertise with other pastors. I think we've been, if not too proud, too busy, or our identities wrapped up too much in only local effort to be brave to explore what that might look like in some growing aspects of congregational ministry. And I think we'll be stronger and better for it if we're brave to explore that more. And I think that's where the Forge website comes in, in terms of having an opportunity to share what you're doing well at your church with other pastors or other lay individuals so that they then can see if something similar would work in their church and like already have some of the curriculum or already have some of the legwork that needs to be done. And then they would just spend a little bit of time adapting it to their context. And so I think that the Forge, once it's off the ground and running, I think it's going to be a tremendous resource for us as a denomination to be able to share with each other the interworkings of our church. So I'm excited for that. I am too. I am too, Mike. And so glad you guys are on board with that. And that's been part of the vision I've been pursuing here for the last couple of years too. But, and I would just predict, you know, just like prayer and witness, disciple making, extroverting the church. I think we're going to find that the Forge network is only going to have impact if we come back to it. Okay, we got to use it. We got to stretch it. We've got to trust kind of a wiki perfectionism of it where we trust each other not to be the CLB's got talent and we're all critics of other material on there, but rather let's take the best of it. Let's affirm the best and refine and, and tune it, but let's use it. I think there's great opportunity with the Forge Network. So, Paul, we've uh, talked with you today about people that have influenced your life as a disciple, as a leader. We've heard you share your vision for the future of the CLB. Our last question may seem a little basic to go from like, the grand questions of vision to some to a question about your everyday life, but we would love to know what are a couple of things that make sure you include in your everyday life as a leader? I think that's a good note for us to wrap our conversation on. Maybe some of our listeners will be influenced by you, learn from you through what you share I don't know as a model for that. I'm not a shining light of discipline and, and rhythm, but a couple things that come to mind that are regular rhythms of every day or pretty much every day. I start out every day with a strong, long measure of quiet. And whether or not that is just time to organize my thoughts, really deliberately meditate, scripture, reflection, sometimes reading the news and contemplating the world. I like to rise early, and it is not uncommon for me, even more so in the years that I've been in this role, to spend up to three hours in the morning, early morning, uh, before I see anybody else in quietness. I learned during the pandemic, and some of it is a predisposition that I don't think there are many new things, any new things under the sun. And I think the Ten Commandments cover all the great maladies of humanity and two tables of the law send me to love my neighbor and God in, in a way that I think the church has to be live to respond to some things, but I, there really is nothing new under the sun that way. So of nature, I am not a prolific commentator, but I found during the pandemic, what I felt I was being summoned to do was the one thing I knew that I could do, and that was to pray. 
And I remember when the job description of the president's position came up, one of the first qualifications came off. That's not talking about me. He shall be a man of prayer. And we all are and we all aren't, right? But part of my morning quietness is to pray maybe in a way, in a, in a depth for my own family and church family and our pastors. That's been one of the things that I've given myself to. I am a reader, but I might not be the kind of reader that you would admire. I read a lot of current events. I read a lot of history. I read scripture. I've been working through Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and that's been fascinating. I've been rereading the catechism several times. I just find that in stretch times, there's just something. So your podcast with Gene Bow was great on that. I'd already been doing that, but just it's so balanced and robust and just revisiting something very primary that way and go, wow, that really covers. And I think the church under duress tends to veer. We specialize and we veer and we get a fancy for a specific thing. And, and I just think documents like that, explanation of Luther's small catechism is really good at just kind of holding the center. So it's a quietness, a prayer, reading. And I try to exercise. I had back surgery three months ago. And so that kind of knocked me out of the gym, but I'm normally in the gym at zero dark, 5.30 in the morning, three days a week uh, when I can be. And uh, that's as much mental health as physical health. No rocket science there. I'm not a monster of self-discipline, but those are some of my rhythms. Well, thank you, President Larson, for allowing us to kind of peek behind the veil, get to know you a little bit better, and for our listeners, too, to be able to get to meet you. I know that most of our listeners probably know exactly who you are, are familiar with the work that you're doing for our denomination as you continue to propel us forward and further God's kingdom within the Lutheran brethren. So thank you for taking time out of your day in order to spend it with Ryan and I and to help our listeners get to know you as well. So thank you. Thank you, Mike and Ryan. Good to be with you today. To our listeners, don't forget to subscribe to the show so that you can get a notification the next time that the podcast drops. And we'd love it if you could share this podcast with a friend or a colleague. Thanks for listening and we will catch you next time. This has been an episode of the CLB Forge podcast brought to you by CLB North American Mission. Thanks for listening. We welcome your questions and comments. Email us at podcast at clbforge.org.